1: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization
0: and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
1: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of The Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We're going to be joined for the show today by Will Peck, who's the head of Strategy and Emerging Technologies at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I am a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of the Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show, couldn't have a better time show with Cryptocurrencies going a little wild. Uh, We've got uh, the founders of a crypto hedge fund that Will and I are going to be talking to um, for the show. But, Professor, we've got some updates in the markets here, some tax policies, updates. We knew these were coming, um, but the market's sort of hanging in there. They're sort of rebounding after a little sell off yesterday.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, And it is puzzling because there's nothing in in that that he hadn't put on the website. Listen, uh, people that have been listening to us know that I, I said, you know, way last year that uh that uh, maybe about half of his tax hikes are going to get in. I said, you know, we'll probably get the corporate rate at 25. There will be some removal of some of the Trump uh lowerings, but we will not get uh, you know, the absolute uh, removal of of capital gains even for the high income people. Uh, that 's just not going to happen, uh so and I have not changed any my mind I, I I was really shocked i mean I think it's it's it 's these trend followers that all of a sudden they said, "Oops, just a minute, this is bad news to get off and then it, uh, uh, stops are triggered for all the trend followers. oh just a minute market 's down one uh, percent i 've got to get out and when I, and then it overreacts i mean we were actually today almost made up what we 've lost yesterday it 's really no reason to, uh, you know, change your view on on uh, the the markets at all. Uh, you know, what I'm looking at, as you know, is inflation coming up. Uh, next week, we get the PCE deflator, but it's for the month of March. It's the last indicator. We've already had CPI and PPI. Inflation's really not going to start showing. And, and uh, until we get into looking at the April and May figures, we've got lots of anecdotal evidence. I think what the Fed and the markets are waiting for is this anecdotal evidence actually going to turn into real evidence that we actually see uh, in those statistics. I think uh, it will, um, uh, but we're going to have to wait a little bit longer uh, uh, to see that.
1: You know, Professor. One speaking of the Fed, one of the things um, right after James Bullard came on our show, he was he was on another another program, and he made some comments that if the vaccination rate got to seventy five percent, they'd have to start thinking about tapering. And now we've got sort of vaccination levels. As a indicator for monetary policy, I, I don't know if you have any, if you heard those comments or have any views. Is that? Uh, is, is, do you think he's got? Is he just an outlier there? Is he? Is, is well, that? Well, he's some...
2: been pretty bullish. I know it's a good point. I mean, he's been bullish about you know once this uh, you know vaccine is behind us, that we're going to have a very very strong recovery. Um, and I, you know he was on our show early in the pandemic a year ago, and then again. uh, You know, when when I expressed concern over all the money that was increased, so uh, yeah, his position is that we were going to rebound. Now we're rebounding a lot later than we certainly thought last, you know, year ago, March and April. We thought, hey, maybe you know, by the end of the summer, we'd all be back to normal, and then of course we had the the winter surge. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that pretty much uh, does. I mean, you know, you you take a look at countries that have vaccinated extraordinarily well like uh, uh Israel, it the rates are way down, and in fact, it was an extraordinary news. I mean, we've had eighty four million people that have been fully vaccinated um of those that are fully vaccinated, only six thousand cases, which is less than one hundredth of one percent. and of those only four thousand of those cases showed any symptoms. and I think of of all those, there's only been forty seven deaths. I mean, so I mean, you are actually less than flu levels now of uh, people who are vaccinated in terms of, of you know what danger it is, um are actually below what we we get in a uh, a normal flu season. mean uh, we're not gonna wipe out the, the coronavirus. Uh uh the question is is getting it down to levels where it really poses no more danger than everything else that is basically out there specifically the flu which by the way kills about 35,000 people a year but killed virtually no one last year uh because covid took over and people were 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 safe and distanced. uh but you know there so we we can't we're never going to eliminate it at all um and uh in fact Scott Gottlieb was on again and he said I expect summer to be really good in fall but I expect those who are not vaccinated we're gonna see a little bit of a resurgent next uh November and December. And you know, that's just going to be the way it's gonna be. I you're not gonna get everyone vaccinated. They refuse to take it they're gonna take their chances and um we could argue whether that's right or wrong. Uh but that's what's gonna happen. It's always gonna be background noise. But uh yeah, I think he's one gonna be one of those that is I think uh you know, worried about that inflation from money. He's not voicing it. Um but uh we'll see whether more fed officials there is a fed meeting next week but they're going to be not no new news because the, the except for the producer price index that we got last month nothing has been that dangerous it's all anecdotal so they're going to wait for the hard evidence. They say things are moving in the right direction, but we have no, do, you know, desire to change our plan. So that's what's going to happen next week. We're going to really have to wait until a couple more reports are out, and then the meeting that we see in June, which is a quarterly meeting where they actually, uh, you know, make their forecasts. That's when we might be uh, hearing more uh, about, uh, you know, the possible, uh, uh, you know, tapering of the uh, open market purchases.
1: You know I know you're on the more aggressive side on interest rates, and uh I heard uh maybe somebody more aggressive than you i I heard Larry Lindsay's calling for three percent on the tenure by the end of the year um I, I know you said three percent
2: more aggressive than me and we've had a little respite no, you're perfectly right, jeremy and you know i, I you know it was up to 175 and now it's 155 um i you know, it was a crowded trade let's face it i mean everyone was oh god and, and 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 then there was a little bit of news that wasn't so bad everyone covered their shorts and now it's you know been hanging in in the 150s i i think it will resume up and it will reach above two but one has to remember you know 40 year bull markets don't die overnight i mean this is one of the longest bull markets in history uh, and there's a lot of reasons again people buy those b- bonds as short term hedges and you know uh you know low inflation is not going to cause them to give it up overnight but i think the steady march upward on yields uh will continue uh for the rest of this year
1: very good we're going to be talking crypto on the show um any any uh it's yeah, been a it's been Yeah, until
2: vo- recently uh listen uh
1: you know, I, you know, I, I
2: tell you, the, the big risk on crypto is regulatory risk. If the, if the, if, if the government decides to put out either a central bank currency, break the monopoly on MasterCard and Visa, and have private banks offer transfers at 10 basis points, mandate firms to be able to, you know, give discounts to people, don't use credit cards, um, uh, enforce capital gains and money laundering rules in crypto, I mean, I can go on and on. Those are the risks on crypto. Um, and, um, you know, uh, if they're, if they're pursued, that will depress the price. If they're not, uh, you know, it's the new gold, it's the new hedge against inflation. And, uh, if, if nothing's done, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see it resume its, uh, its, uh, upward course, at least in the short run.
1: Very good, Professor. Always great to get your comments. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, let me turn our conversations. We have Will Peck, who's the head of strategy, emerging technologies at WisdomTree. And we have two uh, two great guests, Ed Shin and Tejas Naval, co-founders of Parataxi Capital. Uh, Ed is the CEO. Tejas is the chief investment officer. Hopefully, I'm getting, Tejas, your name close to correct. Um, probably not. But uh, w- welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having us. Um, it's, it, it's good to be here as a Wharton grad and former student of uh, Professor Siegel's. It's, it, it's glad to kind of get his perspectives. Um, you know, by, by way of background, um, uh, you know, Tejas and I are the co-founders, and as you mentioned, the CEO and CIO of Parataxis Capital, respectively. Uh, Parataxis a, is a multi-strategy a hedge fund focused only on the digital asset sector. You know, but uh, I grew up in California, and I uh, went to Cal as an undergrad. Uh, spent spent a couple of years as a as a U.S. military officer, um, and, and overseas as a Fulbright fellow before uh, going up to the Warren School. Um, I, interestingly enough, I, I started at Lehman Brothers in 2008 uh, as as an investment banker, um, just as the firm was filing for bankruptcy, and, and coincidentally just as the Bitcoin white paper was was being published, and so. I feel like uh, we, we've come, where I've come full circle in, in some senses. I, uh, I joined the digital asset space um, uh, after having spent about a decade in banking in 2017 to run the advisory business at one of the earlier merchant banks in the space called the Element Group. Um, and, uh, on the other side of the Chinese wall, managing the firm's uh, hedge fund and asset management division is, is uh, was my counterpart and, and CIO Tejas. Um, I, I spent about a year there before uh, working for uh, uh, Galaxy Digital, and then launching Parataxis in late 2019. Uh, we we have three funds that we're managing today: the, the flagship absolute return fund, uh, which we'll get into the details of. We kicked off in, in June of 2020, and uh, uh, you know, folks thought we were crazy starting a fund in the middle of a pandemic. <clears throat> but in hindsight, it's pretty clear that the, that the timing was pretty spot on.
1: Very good, Tages. How did you come to the crypto space? Give us your background. Sure, sure.
3: Thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for having us. Um, um, like Ed, my
1: background is uh,
3: traditional finance as, as well, um, but on the trading side, I spent, I spent about a decade at uh, at Goldman Sachs early in my career. Um, most recently, as a portfolio trader in the equities division. The uh, in in 2012, the the guy that was sitting next to me on a trading desk uh was mining and trading bitcoin uh on the side and this is this is pre mount gox this is uh before bitcoin had its first run up and really where most people uh, in, in my world got their first introduction um, that's where I, I i learned about it i bought some i think it was trading sub 200 dollars at the time i didn't buy enough of course uh <laughs> but uh, for me the the appeal as a trader was seeing an ecosystem that looked and felt like um, the Wall Street that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and, it, and it looked and felt like an ecosystem that was being architected right in front of my eyes. So the opportunity to, to be a part of that and, and, and join uh, or, or uh, uh, leave my current seat and, and join the crypto world full-time was uh, very, very appealing. So I, I joined um, uh, the Element Group, which is the company where I met Ed. Uh, in 2017, I was um, one of the early employees there. I effectively built and launched a hedge fund from scratch uh, with that team. Was managing a series of fundamentally driven long and short strategies uh, for the Elman Group, and then um, spent some time in another crypto uh, hedge fund in 2019. And then before leaving to to join Parataxis and uh, you know, help ed, uh, uh, build the fund that we have today.
4: So, how do you think about this? So I gotta okay. ask. You know, looks like there was a big move overnight in uh, <laughs> a little bit less so in East. Do you have any commentary on what's going on there for the listeners? Sure. Um,
3: so I, I think the the market obviously didn't like the 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 news yesterday with uh, uh, the possibility of a cap gains tax increase. Um, I don't I don't think any market liked that. So there was a bit of a pullback. Um, you know, there's. With crypto, these pullbacks in the short term tend to be a little bit more volatile, um, given the amount of leverage that exists in the system. So I think you saw a little bit of a long squeeze happen, uh, overnight, of course, catalyzed by, by certain macro events. Um, and so, and so, um, and there was also some weekly expiry, uh, some, we- some options that were expired, uh, early this morning. So, you know, it was a, a bit of a timing thing, uh, some, some short-term news, or some short-term selling by, uh, by retail traders, but, you know, it looks like, a little, looks like uh, the market's priced it in uh, fairly well right now.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. Wait, the, wait. the pullback though, if, if you think about fundamentally, the, the thesis around the asset class hasn't changed, I think. Yeah. The macro tailwinds are, are still very supportive. And if you think about global exchange trading volumes, about 10% um, of, of global volumes is, is based on the U.S., and, and you know about half of that is Coinbase, and if, if, if you assume that um, you know most of the purchasers on Coinbase are longer-term holders, uh, they're thinking about holding this asset, you know, past four or eight years. Uh, uh, with, uh, so the exposure to any type of potential uh, uh, ga- uh, increases in capital gains taxes, <clears throat> we think we'll, we'll actually have a, a muted effort on, uh, on on some of the largest capital flows in the space, and so. You know, it, it's pulled back and Bitcoin's under 50k, but but you know, for a longer term holder, this may actually prov- uh, present a pretty interesting
4: entry point. Yeah, now it's only up, uh, you know, however many x this year, as opposed to <laughs> x plus one this year. Um, it does get to kind of an interesting thing that you know a lot of people have started to comment on where there are big moves overnight in U.S. hours, U.S. hours overnight. It's obviously Bitcoin is unique in that it's truly a global market, trades 24/7, 365. With very active markets in Asia while uh, the U.S. is sleeping. And this is not an uncommon thing to see, right, where uh, U.S. investors may wake up in the morning and the price will have gapped one direction or the other. Do you have any commentary or kind of a simple explanation on why that is or some differences between uh, the markets uh, being U.S. and Asia What that can drive this difference?
3: yeah yeah, it's, it's a trend that we've noticed too um, and, it, and it's one of those things where the moment uh, the moment you start talking about it it tends to be a trend that just self manifests and and, and and it stays constant I, I think there's a there, there's a few factors driving that um, number one there is a we've noticed during US hours at times there is some slight correlation to the equity markets I think this is really due to uh, folks trading correlation trades between stocks and, and, and crypto and at, at times of, of outside moves, uh, that has a, that has a short-term effect. So, um, that's number one. Number two, there are different players or different pockets of, um, uh, of investors, um, uh, in Asia versus the U.S. Um, if, if you think about, if you think about, um, uh, what's happening right now with, with, uh, the launches of, of, of various uh, ETFs, uh, various uh, more retail-focused uh, uh, fund wrappers—they're they're largely West Coast-based, so a lot of the buying happens to be um, happens to be during U.S. hours, happens to be when when the U.S. when the Western Hemisphere is awake. And I think I, I think people tend to preempt that trade as well, so they may hedge overnight and and buy the U, uh, U.S. market hours. Um, and again, it's one of those things that turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy over time.
1: We're talking with Tejas Naval and Ed Chin, co-founders of Parataxi Capital, crypto-focused hedge fund, which is, you know, in the news today. I mean, Bitcoin and and, and ETH are the two coins a lot of people talk about, but there's been a, a big, you know, 10% moves in a lot of things Um over over recently, um, how, how do you guys, as, as a hedge fund, how are you thinking about building exposures, the types of assets you want to do, and then really just the type of trading strategies you want to employ, how are you thinking about the, the types of strategies that you, that you guys focus on?
3: Yeah, um, I, I can share my views um, very quickly. Uh, I think the way we think about the world has really been shaped by what we've seen in crypto over the past several years, um, and what we've seen with traditional assets uh, we understand that markets run in cycles. Uh, crypto is no different. Uh, the cycles are a little bit uh, more accelerated, uh, and they tend to revolve around Bitcoin's halving schedule. Um, so there are bull markets. There are bear markets. There are times that it makes sense to hold a natural long bias, times it makes sense to uh, be hedged or be a bit more tactical. Um, and we, we also do understand that the store of value hypothesis with Bitcoin doesn't necessarily translate to a large part of the market, and there is value that, that that exists outside of Bitcoin um, in, in a way that's uh, very different than, than years prior. Um, there are real cash flows being generated with certain segments of the market that we can model and actually uh, uh, forecast a fair value price uh, for certain tokens. Um, and, and so we, 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 we do allocate a significant portion of our fund to, to that thesis. Um, and we also recognize that the market's still very young, it's still very nascent. Um, the, the, it's, it's, um, inefficient and that inefficiency, as we've, as evidenced by this week's, uh, 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 price action, and it just creates opportunity for arbitrage. And for us as an active fund, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's alpha right there. So we, we've incorporated a lot of these, um, uh, paradigms into how we've constructed our portfolio. Um, and so we're, we're a multi strat portfolio. Our focus is absolute return. We aim to produce a, Positive return, irrespective of if we're in a bull market or a bear market, uh, and and I think and I think that this gives gives us a lot of freedom and, and flexibility to be tactical. Um, and if you think about the crypto markets too, they, it tends to evolve and reinvent itself every six months. So you you have to have that uh, ability to be tactical because. You know, for, for a lot of single strategy funds, you may spend a lot of time backtesting a strategy and it may, it may work exceptionally well in your backtest, but the moment you put it into uh, – commit real capital to it, you, you realize it doesn't work because the market has changed. New, new, new players have entered the space. Uh, the microstructure has evolved. So, for us, the ability to be tactical and really uh, evolve with the markets uh, was important when we were designing this fund.
1: Going so really in true. on
4: that a little bit, cageus you know, obviously, I think a lot of the listeners, some of them may have like a Coinbase account or a Gemini account. You know, Bitcoin, ETH, probably easier to grasp and understanding kind of the alt tokens from there. But I mean, what you guys are doing is much beyond just right picking winners or losers, kind of quote stock picking within the crypto space. So, what are, are there? Some things you can examples you can give or analogies you can make with kind of traditional markets in terms of what you guys do or some of the strategies you employ.
0: Sure.
3: Ed, uh, you want to talk about um, how we think about DeFi or, or how we think about um, our thesis-driven investments here?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. So that we, we, we broadly break, uh, break up our, our exposures across uh, macro, thesis-driven, and, and non-correlated. <clears throat> we're, we're really excited about um, our thesis-driven book. If you think about um, some of the things that are, that are happening in the most exciting parts of the digital asset space, it actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And so, I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are traditionally the entry or the, the gateway drugs in, into the sector. But uh, pretty soon, I think, folks uh, will realize that, that there's, a, there's a, a, a ton of interesting things going on. Uh, you know, one interesting uh, sector is the decentralized finance space, uh, also known as DeFi. What we're seeing there is, is replication of, of entire swaths of, of the traditional financial infrastructure and ecosystem. Um, And and by by effectively removing a layer of operating expense, you know, if if you think about a Wells Fargo, it it has to basically fund a management team, bank branches, um, and and a bunch of marketing expenses. If you can replace that with code uh, and issue a a governance token uh, on top of that so that the actual users of the network themselves uh, can accrue the value from, from 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 the network effects on that network. That's really powerful. And so, you know, one, one example, uh, a thesis-driven investment that we have, that we continue to remain bullish on, is MakerDAO. It's a it's a decentralized uh, lending platform. It, it, if you think about it, it's it's effectively what Wells Fargo does today, uh, but but you or I or any other individual can take their own collateral post it uh, onto the blockchain and lend against that and, and, and use those proceeds to, to, to do other things. And so we're really, really excited about that because um, uh, those, those platforms are, are decentralized, uh, they're censorship resistant, and, and, and it really lowers the barriers to entry uh, for folks that may not otherwise have access to traditional uh, financial infrastructure to, to basically participate in lending markets.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from a personal perspective, and I think you Wisdom is a firm really interested in these types of protocols, really processes, the way I've thought about it in the past. I mean, it's just taking things, like you said, Ed, that were manual processes, paperwork that was shuffled, and making it self-executing automated code, um, which you can ignore all the other things about DeFi if you focus on that one thing. It's actually a very, very cool innovation where you can have... You know, everyone who's affiliated with a project could leave, go do something else. And the fact that that protocol can still execute its code and serve the functions that it was set out to do is just a very cool technology and something that, you know, we think has lots of implications in lots of different places going forward. Now, there's going to be a long ramp up plan and it needs to kind of evolve beyond today, where I think it's mostly a space that's focused on really crypto native people and is not necessarily bring kind of. Making its way into traditional finance yet, but the applications of it seem very real. That, that, that's right. I think I
3: think I think if the the, the analogy I tend to give people is, um, if, do you remember trying to log on to the internet back in the mid '90s? It was uh, it was actually a very difficult process if you weren't uh, computer native uh, before before the web browser was it was was invented. So so. We're kind of at that point. Um, you have to be somewhat crypto-native to to really uh, access what, what what many of these pre- uh, platforms offer in terms of yield or the ability to borrow. But I think uh, we will start seeing the the uh, application le- uh, layer really evolve uh, to be a bit more uh, user-friendly and, and especially to folks who aren't uh, who aren't crypto-native or who aren't even finance-native.
1: You made an interesting point earlier on the that there's coins that you can put a fair value on you know and people a lot of think people call this just speculative you know it's just betting on higher prices continuing can you give an example of a coin that you do do that kind of fair value work and how you think about trying to build a model for valuation
0: yeah yeah i mean I, uh, just going back to the maker example we you know we we have an operating model on that protocol if you think about it uh just like just like any financial institution, uh, the, the key kind of KPI there is net interest margin. So by by basically borrowing from the the protocol, uh, you'd have to pay an interest rate, and depending upon the collateralization ratio and the actual uh, underlying uh, asset, that that rate can uh, fluctuate anywhere from three to nine percent uh, today, and it, and it can move up or down based on governance votes and what the market is doing. And then there's a there's a savings rate that the protocol will pay out as well. And the delta between that is net interest margin or, or, or income. And so you know, for us, you know, we're, we, uh, we're pretty close to the foundation and, 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 and participate in, in all the governance calls. And so we have a pretty good sense of, of what, what a forecast for that asset base could look like. And the reason why we're excited about Maker, you know, talking about bridging the, the digital with the real world, they're, they're in the process of onboarding real-world assets, you know, whether they be commercial real estate loans, trade receivables, really, really cool things. And, and folks are, 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 are looking to tap this source of capital because uh, from a cost of capital perspective, it's, it's uh, immensely uh, competitive to, to what they can get from hard money lenders or, or, or from the commercial banking system. And so, by, by having a view on, on what that asset base could look like and, and what that net interest margin could, uh, what, what could be forecasted out to, you could either develop a DCF on that apply a, a, a multiple. There are other relative value metrics that we look, as well, look at as well. Uh, uh, there's something called a price to total value lock, which is it, it's pretty similar to a price to book um, or a book value uh, metric that you would look at for a, a traditional bank. And so uh, these things uh, wouldn't be underwritten uh, outright uh, by, by our investments team, but but it, it helps us develop a framework to, to get a good sense for when something may be
4: uh, uh, perceived to be under or overvalued. I think that I mean that's really interesting because one of the things that I don't know if it's a pet peeve, but you know people will talk about. And it's easy to do this. You say crypto assets as an asset class, and really, their crypto assets are almost a vehicle or technology for lots of different types of assets. Where the investment case for Bitcoin could be really different from that of Ether, which could be really different yeah. from that of MakerDAO, right? And it's not like all of these are the same thing, yep. and you can paint them with all the same brush. You know, each can have very different uh, investment. You know theses, because you could do a stock to flow valuation model or whatever on Bitcoin, which doesn't have cash flows, doesn't generate cash flows, it doesn't fit into like a DCF model or anything like that. It's like gold has been for you know yeah. centuries. Whereas you know MakerDAO or some of these other tokens actually generate cash flow and have kind of utility in that sense that can be fit into valuation metrics and have totally different investment you know risks and return potential than some other crypto assets.
0: Yeah, that's we right. Have- in, in, in the case of maker, that excess cash flow, uh, there's an automatic buy buyback mechanism. The same way that a, a traditional public company would would you know initiate a a, a share buyback program through through its board, uh, because it's embedded within the code, and because the actual users of the platform can vote on these things, uh, there's a, there's a real way to to be able to forecast and measure what the what usage on the network. Uh, 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 is likely to be and how that would translate into a, a future token price, and so all of this is still very early days. It's very dynamic. We've we've seen valuations overshoot, and in the case of Maker, we think it's probably one one of the most undervalued lending protocol tokens out there today. But it's still very early. Where what we're trying to do is is, is leverage uh, a lot of the the methodologies and, and trading strategies that have worked in traditional financial markets to, as Kay just mentioned, what we think is a is a really uh, nascent and exciting, uh, but still inefficient marketplace. And, 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 and you know, so far, uh, things seem to be working out okay.
1: We're going to be talking with Tejas and Ed for the whole program. One of the issues, we were just talking about DeFi uh as a concept within the crypto space. And one of the opportunities is all these lending at people. We talked at the start of the show, how interest rates are so low, maybe interest rates start rising, but people talk about these, you know, huge quote unquote, huge yields, maybe double digit yields, and maybe a little bit less And some of these DeFi exchanges and, 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 and opportunities there. Can we talk about the risks, the leverage in the system and, and what is going on there that gets these, these yields available in the crypto space?
3: Sure, I, I can start off there. So I, I think I think there's a few things uh, um, that determine where yields come from. Um, n- number one, we're, we're in a bull market. Where I think we're firmly in a bull market over the past uh, year. No one's going to argue that. Generally, in a bull market, um, you see futures prices of, of any asset class. Uh, trade at a premium um, and trading contango and there's a cash and carry art that exists. Uh, this is with really any commodity market and so so that that creates a natural organic yield in, in that sense because there's a demand uh, uh, for that type of leverage. And so right now the, the demand for leverage is very high. People will pay um, um, higher interest rates to borrow stable coins or other crypto assets and it's a function of the market that we're in. So, that's a, that, that that shouldn't come as a shock. I think that's the, the case for really um, any, any asset or any commodity that has a derivatives uh, market as well. Uh, second, uh, a lot of these protocols themselves, like we mentioned before, they do generate fees. So there are revenues. Um, the ethos with DeFi is the ability to participate in this ecosystem and um, similar to owning equity in a, in a Stock exchange or a, a business that generates fees, you sort of own a percentage of uh, of the exchange itself and, and and get some of the fees uh, um, from the protocol itself. So there there's um, there's yield in that sense. Um, and I, I think that the third is what we've found is the most interesting is um, many of these protocols. They're they're early stage. They're they're built by small teams, and the way they bootstrap uh, liquidity the way they bootstrap their own growth is by uh offering native tokens um uh that are effectively governance tokens within the protocol themselves and and, and there's a yield component for that so by providing liquidity to a platform that needs ethereum or needs uh, uh usdc you're paid um a governance token uh for xyz protocol and so, that, that in itself is, is yield because these, these tokens trade um, on various marketplaces. And so, I think um, there there's
4: this, those are probably the top three um, uh, sources of yield. There's, there's a, uh, is there a fourth that, you know, one of the th- examples I've heard is that, you know, crypto markets function on a pre-funded basis on exchange, where unlike in traditional markets, which people really learned about with the GameStop Robinhood saga, uh, that they settle T plus two on the securities markets. Um, and then there's a clearance settlement cycle that happens, and there's some counterparty risk in there, whereas Bitcoin settles when on-chain in, you know, 15 minutes or whatever it ends up being for that block to settle. Um, but. As part of that, it means that if you're making a trade or want to quote a price as a market maker, that uh, you need to actually have the Bitcoin there to be able to fill that order. Um, So, that leads to a system where it actually is very capital intensive to make markets across, you know, exchange in Asia versus a, you know, Coinbase in, in California. Uh, which some of these global market making firms will do. And there's a lot of opportunity for arbitrage there for them to do their job in terms of arbitraging that out and providing tight spreads and good markets, um, across. But that means that it's capital intensive. And so to do that, they would look to borrow Bitcoin, let's say, and the rates they can do that, they can easily earn that back out in the spreads that they would charge for, uh, so that's a long answer, but is that, do you guys think that's a good reason too? It, it, it no, absolutely is. It, it's capital intensive. It's also uh,
3: the the microstructure is very fragmented. So if you have Bitcoin on one exchange, you can't necessarily use that to borrow uh, or cla- use that as collateral for something else on a on a, on a separate exchange. So there's no uh, there's no cross margining uh, or no clean way to cross margin that exists today. Uh, so for, for a market maker, for a principal desk um, that needs a large balance sheet, uh, it is a challenge. So the, the simplest, cleanest solution at times is to uh, you know, borrow and, and you, you pay up uh, a, a little bit in the, in the rate that you're borrowing. But uh, yeah, to your point, you make it you up in, in trading and spreads
4: yeah, and I think this overall topic is really interesting. It's one of the things that I get most commonly from friends outside the industry who are open-minded and kind of you know interested is they'll you know see an ad for you know a service that says, Hey, deposit you, this u s dollar equivalent and you can earn ten percent yields. And they're like, How can this be? Like I'm getting you know nothing in my DFA or chase account right now or any yeah. bank. I mean, no one's paying any rates. Interest rates are zero yet there's people saying that you can get 10% yields. I, and my point then is always like, well, and they will tell you this, this firm, they're not a bank, right? Like there is a level of principal risk that you take on in making that bet. Yep. Um, yep. I, I guess, do you guys have any, what types of risks would you flag if a friend came up and asked you for that? Or how should they think about how this firm is, you know, maybe justifiably and very, with good risk parameters, generating these types of yields on um, like dollar-based assets?
0: Yeah, so so I, you know, I, I think it comes down to to your point, Will. How is that asset being rehypothecated in order to generate that ten percent yield? Because that market maker or that intermediary is is generating a thirteen to fifteen percent yield on the back end in order to be able to justify that to to to, to the lenders. And so uh, I I I think um, not all the liquidity pools are created alike, as you probably know. We've we, we, we get pitched uh, liquidity pools that are yielding a thousand percent and typically you know if something is too good to be true it's probably because there's something wrong with the underlying code base the token economic design or, or, or other issues there I I think the uh, the the yields on on very stable coin pools are are like you said 10 maybe 15 20 percent depending upon which pools you may be playing uh, but I, I think the more interesting thing is that the fact that you're getting those questions from folks that may otherwise not be thinking about this i i think is the most fascinating um, aspect of DeFi because you know we we've seen traditional centralized systems um you know previously being replicated in the blockchain space but but the issue always been adoption because it, as kate just mentioned it's a bit clunky how do i get access to this yield how do i transact on an automated market maker and in yield farming you know, with its first implementation last year, uh, it really accelerated the adoption of, of decentralized lending, borrowing, trading, uh, by essentially gamifying that credit creation and token exchange process. And so the, the fact that folks that, that may have never owned a Bitcoin before <clears throat> are all of a sudden starting to look at this, uh, I, I think the, these these, the, these yield farming implementations and the incentives that are embedded within these protocols are 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 most importantly uh, drive, uh, driving and helping to bootstrap liquidity, and, 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 and in a sense, uh, creating things that, that didn't necessarily exist there before through a decentralized kind of communal way. And so, you know, there's a reason why Uniswap has surpassed Coinbase at times in terms of exchange volume. Um, and and I, I think that's the key innovation. I think these yields, um, are 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 are, are attractive depending on the pool, and and, and um, as more capital enters the space, we do have a view that that the yields will probably be uh, compressed uh, because there's going to be more assets, more capital chasing uh, fewer rewards. But but the way that the markets are today, and the innovation and and and, and the new protocols that are coming to market, I, I think it, it'll ideally be a source of returns for investors for, for the foreseeable future. And you mean? You one anecdote I'll
3: add to that: um, um, if, if you think about USDC right now, I think on, on certain platforms, um, like like a, like a BlockFi, I think it pays seven eight percent, which is a which is a good yield for a, for a stable coin. Um, and so, if, if you think about what is what are you uh, what are you getting there, um, or why why are you getting seven percent? Um, there is a certain amount of risk that that exists that. Isn't existent with a traditional bank. Um, you know, it, it is a stable coin backed by. I, I think Circle was was the founder, but it's Coinbase now that that issues the stable coin. So, there. If you were to price that risk, uh, plus the, uh, it's built on the, uh, the Ethereum blockchain, plus the counterparty risk, uh, which is very minimal. BlockFi is a very well-funded company. It probably does come to right around seven percent. So. Um, it's, it's, it's not, uh, something crazy. And the, uh, the other anecdote I'll give you is I remember in college, uh, I opened up an ING orange savings account. I think I was getting seven or 8% on my dollars there. So it's, uh, I think we're, we've been in a low rate environment for so long. We're somewhat conditioned to think that this is how much, uh, this is where interest rates should be or what that, so I think, I think, I think what we're seeing in, in the crypto space is probably, um. Uh, a, a good proxy for where where folks uh, who are very young today uh, would feel comfortable uh, uh, putting
4: their dollars and earn, and earn generating uh, interest. It is a funny disconnect though when we start off the call with Professor Siegel saying he was a uh, he's been the most um, I don't know if you say bullish or bearish on rates, thinking they'd go to three percent on the ten year this year. <laughs> And you guys are calmly talking about uh, 7 8% on uh, dollars. And uh, it just shows you kind of the, I don't know if you say disconnect, but um, difference between uh, the traditional TradFi world and the uh, DeFi decentralized world.
1: Let me just do a quick reintroduction here. We've got Ed Chin and Tages Naval of Parataxi Capital, crypto-focused uh, hedge fund and, and, and as CEO and, and Tejas is the chief investment officer. Why don't we talk a little bit about the setting up the sort of new hedge fund during a pandemic and, and how it's gone, like the business side, you know, how, how has it been raising capital in this new world? And, and, uh, how have you found it? It's, uh, it's been
0: go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we, we started in the fourth quarter of 2019, and, and just as the pandemic was kicking off, um, was our, our first investor, uh, we, we, had, we had martinis with him at, at Cipriani's at, at Grand Central in February, just as the lockdowns were, were coming down. And, and, and so, um, the the biggest shift for us is that uh, every single dollar that we've raised from investors, and we should talk about you know what the investor landscape looks like as well. It's been done over Zoom uh, or, or or phone calls, and, and that that you know coming from a, a traditional banking background, where where for any type of capital raise you're, you're typically meeting with with the investors directly. Uh, it was it, it was a departure, and we, we weren't sure how how that was going to play out. But I, I I think what it points to is is just a growing appetite um, for investors that may have a small. Bitcoin allocation, um, but but for those that want to uh, get additional exposure, for them the volatility associated with you know holding a single name or in some instances you know trust-based products that, that may be trading at 15 to 20 percent discounts isn't really appetizing. And so 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 for those folks, uh, you know over over multiple conference calls, mm-hmm. it was it was inter- really interesting to see how uh, how investor behavior itself shifted um, from from you know normally sitting down uh, over a meeting, over multiple meetings, versus having a couple of calls and, 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 and funding. And so that, that, that was a key change in my mind.
3: In, in a weird way, uh, being forced to do all of uh, our investor calls over Zoom just allowed us to get more reps in uh, organically. I mean, I think there was, there was a week back in March or April last year where we had like 40 or 50 investor calls that week. That would've been impossible if we, had to, if we were shuffling around New York City um, you know, and, and or, or, or transit. So I think that to, at the point, the biggest question we had to answer was, will people give us money if they've never met us and they've only seen us over a video call? And I think we answered that pretty early on. Um, and you know we're, we're pretty proud of the fact that uh, we built this during a pandemic.
1: It is interesting how much it's going to go back to normal. And I used to spend probably half my time traveling, talking to clients and investors. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like my travel is going to be down 75 percent to your point that it, you can reach more people this way. You know, in, in this remote fashion, we do more things regularly in office hours, segments. So like, do you do you see yourselves traveling less? I mean, how do you see that?
0: I, I think I think Texas is going to head down to Miami for the, the Bitcoin conference in June. But I, I I I'm I'm with you. I think uh, the the environment that we're that we're in and, and we've been conditioned to is it, the, the pandemic's pretty much proven out that not everybody necessarily has to be sitting in an office every single day. And so um, uh, it, it it probably also depends on the investors. So we or most of the high net worth individuals that have invested in this. Uh, in, in, in the various funds, uh, we, we've had, you know, uh, video-based calls. Uh, some of the institutional investors that, that we're talking with, uh, they, requ- they still require on-site uh, operational uh, due diligence. And so I, I'd imagine once we get back to the office, um, uh, those aspects of of the fund management business probably will never change. But but the the, the initial conversations with family offices and high net worth individuals, it's pretty clear that, that the medium that, that, that you know, we've used for the past 15 months is, is probably here
1: to stay on premise in your house due diligence calls you gotta come visit on site <laughs> and it's now my home office and you know wisdom trees actually we're taking this remote first world actually um we I mean, we've questioned this whether or not we need a, a physical presence because we find uh we're pretty effective and so it's interesting I mean, it's interesting to hear you know i i have heard that side that hey people feel like they need to visit a place and have a place to visit um but maybe not yeah
4: how do you guys um, do you have contact with um, obviously you're a kind of crypto focused hedge fund with traditional hedge funds in the space? and And one thing that I've found you know as an aside to be interesting about the development of kind of the infrastructure around crypto is obviously, maybe not obviously, but you know hedge funds in general as an asset class have been you know performance has been hard. Alpha's gotten harder to get. and if your whole business is generating alpha, that becomes hard. Uh, but then there's this new asset class comes along with lots of idiosyncratic opportunities and areas where smart people like yourselves can really add alpha and, um, you know, generate high risk-adjusted returns for people. Do you find that traditional hedge funds are seeing this as well, or how do they interact with kind of you guys and your ilk in the crypto world?
0: Yeah, it, it's clear that they're they're looking at the space. I, I think I think most PMs at traditional hedge funds, and, you know, we, we get calls all the time, from from friends that, that that operate in that space, they they may invest and trade out of this out of their PA's. Um, I would say uh, we we've engaged a couple of traditional hedge funds about direct investments, um, and what what ends up happening is that the conversation uh, quickly turns to uh, either their family offices or them individually investing in us, uh, primarily because it's difficult for them to to go back and, and redo all their docs. And because, you know, there's obviously going to be questions around style drift from their LPs, And, and you know, if you're a longshore equity fund and you see amazing returns in, in this one uh, uh, sector of the market, uh, you know, can you go back and, and, and get an amendment uh, through their through your LPs to basically invest directly into crypto or, or, or through another digital asset fund? That, that's the biggest hurdle that, that, that we're seeing today. The, even the pension funds that we're talking with, it's clear that they get the opportunity um, and, and some of them are okay with holding digital assets assets outright, but the custody issues is, is always going to be an issue for them. And so uh, what they're really good at is betting fund managers and, and assessing risk and doing diligence. Uh, I, but the the biggest hurdle that that I see today and, and hopefully uh, you know this will change later this year, if not sometime next year, is is uh, a, a lot of these larger funds or institutional investors, having the flexibility w- within their own fund docs but, and, and, and their investment committee mandates to allocate to the space.
1: In terms of things that you poured over from traditional finance to crypto investing, I mean, you, you mentioned early on trying to make money in bull and bear markets. How do you think about, you know, the, when identifying the bear market is, are we in a bear market today, or is this just a normal pullback? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, sure. So
3: I mean, we manage our risk the way any any principal trader at a at a bank would manage uh, portfolio risk. At, you know, and, and we look at much the same metrics any traditional hedge fund manager uh, would be looking at. Um, the the way we think about the phase of the market that we're in, uh, we we rely on I'd say uh, three categories of signals. Um, the first is. Uh, more fundamentally what's happening uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, for instance, and what we'll look at, um, you know, a number of wallets, we'll look at uh, transactions between large holders. Um, You know, one of the biggest trends we're seeing is uh, Bitcoin being bought up on dips like what we had this week uh, on different exchanges, on Coinbase, for instance, but then being moved uh, to a cold storage wallet. Um, And so we're seeing... Less and less Bitcoin on exchanges, uh, and so one of our you know, one of our uh, an important thesis we have is you know th- th- there will be a supply shock to to the markets because there will just be less Bitcoin physical Bitcoins available to you in the circulating supply, and so um, so we're looking at uh, what's happening fundamentally on on, on various blockchains. That's you in our view that they that's probably the most uh, uh, forward looking signal we can rely on. Um, We'll also look at what's happening structurally between uh, spot exchanges and various derivative exchanges. I think one of the things that uh, most folks don't know is that the, the crypto markets have a very, very robust derivatives market. Um, there is, there's, of course, in, in the U.S. the uh, CME futures and options, but there's a pretty strong uh, uh, futures and options uh, market that exists offshore. A lot of the trading is done over-the-counter, um, and there's a fair amount of volume that happens in, in, in many of these markets. And, and so frequently there's a signal on the way the futures price of Bitcoin, the futures price of Ethereum, or really the futures price of uh, really any liquid cryptocurrency has versus its spot price. And there's a, uh, it's, there's a signal that can be tracked, and usually uh, more than 50% is a good forward-looking indicator for what will happen to price in the short-term. And it does, you know, in our view, it, does, it is a good indicator for uh, you know, short-term uh, market pullbacks and sometimes a, a, an opportunity uh, to really uh, jump into a, um, um, or to really buy a dip. Um, and then the third um, category of signals we rely on, uh, to a lesser extent, we do look at certain technical levels that we know many retail traders uh, tend to love in our, in our view, the crypto markets, on a day-to-day basis, uh, much of the trading that exists, it's still very retail-driven. Um, retail-driven, retail traders are uh, tend to look at the same technical signal. So when you know one segment of the population is buying, that generally means uh, uh, the entire retail uh, uh, market is buying. And so it's a good lagging indicator for um, short-term trends, and in, in our view, the combination of technical, structural, and fundamental signals gives us a good view for in the short term and long term.
1: Well this has been a great conversation. We've been talking with Ed Shin, who's the CEO, and Tejas Naval of Chief Investment Officer of Parataxi Capital Management, all about the crypto space, the asset management part. Uh, Will Peck, head of emerging technology. Thanks for joining me as, as host today. Chris Tukes on the sound board, Patty Hall, producer. You can listen to, to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com.